I am so, so, so excited to announce today's episode. We sat down with Simon Dunmore, founder of Defected and Glitterbox, and I can honestly say this is the best interview I've ever listened to in the music industry, certainly from a brand building perspective and understanding how to build an online community. If you look at Defected and, and Glitterbox, they are the golden case studies of, of how to do exactly that. And they've they've given us all a, a blueprint of how we can emulate what they've achieved. Simon told us all about how he's built a global music empire, and that's across everything with the club events they do, festivals, labels, publishing, radio, and so much more. Simon spoke about how Defected took a big risk at the time by moving uh, to Eden in Ibiza, but ultimately that decision paid off. He spoke about how Glitterbox became a success despite the doubters, believe it or not, in its, in its early days. Uh, we talked about the lessons learned from recently def- uh, launching Defected Radio, and Simon was very honest about the things he wants to improve in that already. We also spoke about keeping your finger on the pulse with your audience and how Simon, to this day, still reads all of the comments on Defected and Glitterbox's socials, and he makes sure he's still spending time on the dance floor with his audience. We recorded this episode live at the Nighttime Economy Summit in Bristol, and I'd like to give a huge shout out to Rory Palmer Rowe, who delivered a fascinating interview with with Simon. Uh, Rory actually worked in the defected office for for many years, so it was great to get that insight. So if I could tell anyone to listen to one podcast about marketing and building a brand in the music industry, this would be it. So I hope you find it as valuable as I did. Let us know what you think and enjoy. So it's my absolute pleasure today to be sitting here with a man who arguably needs no introduction. Label owner, DJ, father, rugby enthusiast, <laughs> Mr. Simon Dunlop. Hi, Roy. How are you? I'm really good. Really, really good. Um, we're going to get into it, but first of all, something that's been a question on my mind was since working with you, it felt like purpose was something that was always important as a business to defected. But it's only recently that it feels like this is coming uh, through loud and clear. Would you say that's been the case? Um, I think that uh, clearly we've always had a purpose. Um, you know, my my passion in life is music. My particular kind of genre of music that I, I align myself to or I enjoy most is house music. And I've been really fortunate for it to become, you know, my vocation, my, my, my job etc. And running a label is certainly over the last 23 years. Um, there's been a lot of bumps in the road. There's been a lot of transitions, and uh, you know, whether it be from physical format to downloads and downloads to streaming, recessions, um, trends in music, EDM, all of these things kind of affect you. And I think really um, we, they were challenges that we had to overcome. Some, you know, and our mantra was always to be the last man standing or the last plane on the runway because a lot of the competition didn't survive those transitions and we wanted to be the survivor to go again and to go again. And about five years ago, we, um, we felt that streaming was the last play in terms of being a record label. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, universally available. Phone tariffs came down, you know, the Spotify model of music on demand and the consumption of music was 
was increasing and, and still continues to, to increase. Um, and so we felt that was the last play. And because of that, we felt a little bit more comfortable within the business. And we started to focus on the more creative things rather than the challenging things of survival. It was like, how can we improve our business? How can we make our business more visible? How can we attract new talent to the business? Um, and since we started doing those things, and, and also, you know, the, the, the kind of um, increase in social media platforms, you know, the fact that mobile phones, you can, you can literally connect with people around the world instantaneously. Um, so it was a case of the business is stable, We've got a great catalogue, we've got a really good reputation, we can connect with our audience, um, and it became a perfect storm, really. And so I think that is probably the uh, um, where you feel that we have more po- purpose. We've always had purpose. Um, and then in 2019, we, we had a great year, and we and we got to the end of the year, and we're like, if we're going to smash it next year, what could possibly stop us? It's going to be amazing. And then, bang. Um, but again, another challenge, and, we, and we've risen to it, and uh, we're still here. Yeah, it seemed like you'd laid the foundations to be able to weather that storm. You had that kind of community online, and arguably, out of everybody, it seemed like that was almost a catalyst for where the effective is now. Yeah, I, I think to, to create a community, and, and we do have a very engaged community, um, you have to work really hard for people's trust. Um, you have to have consistency. We always try to, uh, sp- particularly when we do our events, we always try to over-deliver. Uh, we want people to walk out of the event or the next day to tell their friends what an amazing experience that they had. Um, I can sit there on, on, on Instagram and go, last night was a dream, this one for the books, it was amazing. But I'm shouting about something that I have an interest in and it's marketed. Is promotion. But if someone that has no skin in the game goes, man, I went to Defected last night, I had the best night ever, or I went to Glitterbox and it was incredible. You know, here's a picture of the dancers, here's, you know, Dimitri playing a disco classic and the crowd going crazy. That's referral and that's a much more powerful thing. So I know there's a, there's a movement in clubs where people are going, put your phone away and enjoy the moment. But if you're a 20 year old kid and you're having the time of your life, you want to tell your friends about that you're there at this moment enjoying it and that actually that sharing of that experience is a really powerful thing and that again has increased our community and encourages people to to attend events further down the line was it a conscious strategic shift to make that call with social media and let it be a platform for community building rather than a platform for sales because it's, it's something we, in Busted Media, we always use Defective Channels as an example for what to do and to put community first and sales second because they will come as a byproduct. We, we like to be in control of our own destiny. I mean, I think when you're reliant on, upon a third party to support you, whether it be radio play or a DJ playing a record or a review in a magazine, or you know, all of the, all of those factors that used to be really important to promoting a record. Um, great if they all happen, and if you, if they don't happen, you invariably you're stuck. So we felt if we increased our our following followings on social media, but not in in a way that they were gained. It's not about having a big number; it's about having the engagement. So 
And, and you know, the, the world is, 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 is an extensive place in terms of uh, people that like certain genres of music. It's not about the house music community in the UK. It's about the house music community globally. Um, and we recognised that the first year we did Croatia, which I think was 2015, I may be wrong, um, People travel from all over the world. We had people travel on their own from Australia, from Japan, from Canada, North America, from Scandinavia. There was groups of people traveling, but people made the effort to travel all that way, and they all came together. They had a great time. They all went. They all went home and, and told their friends. And you know, we now have communities, sizable communities in Australia, in Brazil. We just recently did a party in, in Brazil, which was a phenomenal success. And I believe that was born out of 80 people from Brazil coming to Croatia, meeting each other, and amplifying their experience by telling their friends about it. So we learned from that really quickly, and I think it then became, it definitely became more conscious at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a few books that we read. Um, Seth Godin Tribes is a book that we always uh, tell people about, which is really insightful about treating your community really well, um, you know, don't ignore them, understand them, listen to them when they want change, listen to them when they've had a great experience. Um, and you get those comments online. You don't just put a post up and then just go, oh, it's got 5,000 likes, we've done our job. We actually look at the comments because you get real-time feedback from real people. Um, and we employ six people in our social media department now to manage that process. It's our marketing. We don't do the things that we used to do, like take an ad out in a magazine or a radio ad on, 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 on Kiss FM or you know, a radio station. We can invest our money creating great content to keep our community engaged with us. And we talk about things that are not necessarily defective related, like when Black Coffee won his um, Grammy this week, we acknowledge the fact that that's amazing for the scene and that's amazing for the culture. And, you know, we talk about records that are on another label um, or an artist that's not playing our event if the crowd's going crazy. And we, we, we feel if we can relate to it, our audience will relate to it. And so because people think we're objective, I think we have another layer of trust that comes with that. Yeah, massively so. It's such a key thing um, to have that objectivity and to just act as a linchpin for the wider scene in the community help lead that conversation and act as you would on your own social media channels. I guess going back to being the crest of that wave, something we were talking about before, before we went on stage and being ahead of the curve, is it luck or is it a case of the Seneca would say preparation meets opportunity? Um, I think it's both. Undoubtedly both. I mean, we, you know, we work really hard. Um, we, I, you know, I really, I'm quite demanding of my staff. I think that to, to be lucky enough to have a job within the music industry is something that you should value. Uh, and, and, and if I'm being extreme about it, it's almost a privilege. Um, but I don't expect people to do anything that I don't do myself. So I, I still continue to put in a real shift, uh, at least on the front, and, and I hope my staff are there with me. Um, and that, you know, that creates a really good work ethic and, you know, the unity within the, within the business and the company is really strong. Um, 
But, you know, sometimes market forces dictate or sometimes things happen that are beyond your control and they affect your, your, your business and your stability. And then at, at those moments in time, you need a little bit of luck. So, you know, I can remember when we were, cash flow was particularly tight. Um, we, were, we were really worried about continuing to pay staff, etc. Um, and then we put out Bob Sinclair's love generation. And then that led to World Hold On. And, that, you know, that, that came at a very critical time. And I've been quoted in social media saying, Bob Sinclair saved defected. Um, because literally those two records did. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, um, so I think that, you know, if you work hard to some degree, you probably deserve a little bit of luck. And sometimes you create a little bit of luck. And sometimes luck is very much needed. And I think that the people that maybe sometimes work hard um, and, and don't succeed is because luck deserted them, you know, at a needed time. We've been really fortunate. Um, we've just had that little bit of, of, of fortune when it's been most needed. And is it just a case of holding on that little bit longer and being that last player on the runway and not quitting before it happens? So, you know, with events, let's say with Glitterbox, arguably it was ahead of its time and took a little while to get going and now it's the success that it is. What gave you the confidence to keep on going? Um, belief in the music. I mean, music, we are a company that believes in music first. We think that without great music, everything that we do fails to have any kind of meaning whatsoever. So it was a, a real belief in the music. We, we felt there was a gap in the market, but we, we um, I mean, it's 2014 we, we launched Glitterbox and we launched it in Ibiza. And, you know, people go to um, where the crowds go in Ibiza. You know, and, and, you know it's, if there's a successful night or a successful venue, that's where people go to. So we launched Glitterbox at Boom, which wasn't a particularly kind of trendy destination. In fact, it was really struggling. Um, and it was a disaster. Um, there was literally nobody there. Uh, and, and because there was nobody there, the DJs didn't particularly play very well. They were chasing a few people that were there to try to keep them in the club even. Um, and, and my head of promotions resigned at the end of the first night. She said, it was like, this is terrible. There's no future in this, etc." But it was the first night. Second night, it was when the World Cup was on and England played Brazil. Uh, England played Italy in Brazil that night. There was two people in the club at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, we, throughout the rest of the evening, a few more people came, but it didn't get off to a great start. But, you know, what happens in Ibiza is you have an opening, the season starts, and then in August, um, you have the tourists come. It's not really a clubbing tourist, it's just holiday tourists. So there's a little bit of a gap in August where you can pressure reset, you can go again. So what we did, we took all of the sets that the DJs have done, Dimitri from Paris, Dave Lee, David Rice, Frankie, Frankie Nevers at time, whatever. Um, and we took some great photographs of some amazing people that were there, aspirational people, people that look great. It was the beginning of Instagram. People would look at these photos and go, that looks like a cool club. They listen to the music. That seems like the music, something I can relate to. And then when they came back in September, we went from getting 500 people a night to 1,500 people. It was just like we had the opportunity to go again. Um, and that was really the birth of it. But it was, you know, we were fortunate because I believe if we didn't have defected at the same club where we were getting 2,000 people through the door, the owner would have gone, 
with the promotions girl, which is a terrible idea. Let's, let's not continue with it. But he didn't want to upset us because we had defected, and that allowed us to have that longevity of staying with the concept until the public and the audience finally understood it. And once they understood it, it grew from that moment in time. But I'm, I'm pretty stubborn musically, so, you know, it's just like, yeah. Yeah, it's a good business lesson, I think, and a value that's definitely served. Sometimes people move on too quickly, you know, it's just like the public takes a while to catch up. Yeah, and arguably the same with records as well. Records need to be worked. That was something that blew my mind when I first started working for you. I always just did naively think that a record just went, and that was it. And then seeing, you know, the consideration, the time and effort it takes to really work a record. I mean, the, the, the fact that we managed to survive the pandemic uh, was due to our catalogue and the longevity of our records. Records like Into Tomorrow Finally or Fish Go Deep or even Camel Fat Cola. You know, some of our records that are considered to be classics and people were very nostalgic during the lockdown because they wanted to be reminded of good times and the appetite for those records uh, increased because of that. And that gave us a much needed uh, injection of income um, that maybe if you're, you know, a more recent label and you don't have that depth of catalogue, we weren't able to enjoy it. Um, I mean, the fact that we're 23 years old gives us really good, solid, and we have a great catalogue, it's a solid foundations. And I mean, and you continue to buy other catalogues as well. We, um, see, you know, I, I grew up in the, in the 80s, and those records are really personal to me. And sometimes, you know, people that have not been able to survive in business their catalogues are sitting there on hard drives, or you know, and there's no way of accessing them. I mean, there's so many records now. That if I go through my record collection, particularly in major labels, I mean, someone like when I worked at AMPM, we did a, an amazing remix project with, with Janet Jackson, and there was Deep Dish remixes and Danny Tanami remixes and Baby Mirage remixes. None of those mixes are available online, not to stream, not to download. Now, I don't have access to that kind of catalogue. If I did, it would be available because they're, they're important cultural records to me. So when a catalogue like New Groove becomes available and, and I can reference it because I used to play those records as a DJ or I would dance to those records as, as, a, as a clubber, um, I feel that there is still an audience for it. Whether it's people being nostalgic like myself, there's an audience, but also we've got a generation of kids coming through they actually want to know the roots of dance music. It's really important, important to them. Um, and so to make them, to remaster them, to re-promote them, and to, and to make them available again. Um, and we also try to sign new records that are in the vein of the, the sound of those labels to give those records a new profile, a new lease of life. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, the catalogue business is, is, is a good business to be in. Um, but you have to have a route to market. And because we have the community, it goes back to the community, we have a route to market. So it makes more sense for us probably than it would do other labels. Yeah, definitely. It seems there's some massive strategic plays in terms of uh, business, the events. Who's calling these shots? Uh, is it the team around you? Is it yourself? It's, um, it's a combination of... of, of Everyone that works with it within the business, um, 
primarily the people that populate the events are the people that are making records for us. We don't. It's not about selling tickets to somebody that we have no association with. Occasionally we have a guest, but I want to incentivize producers to make music for my label. And if I can support them by giving them events as well, they get the best of both worlds. I mean, our events are really well populated. Um, the audience know the music, so the reaction is always above average. Um, and um, so, it, you know, it, it, really, it really works in, in, in that respect. Um, but also, the, the great thing about the events is they're our marketing as well. If I can book a DJ who's got a, a record coming out, they play the new record ahead of it being released, we film it, we put it on our social media, you know, you see it on, you know, track ID, what's that track, track ID, and whatever, and you tell people, it creates a demand for a record before it's released, which is quite hard to do in these times. So it's a direct interface with our audience, it's a marketing aspect, it's our promotion, and it keeps our recording artists really happy as well. Yeah, it's that 360 music business model. Do you think as a, as a label, that is the only way to exist now? Um... No, I think that um, it works for us. We don't control people's careers 360. So, you know, we, we, uh, we book most of our DJs on third-party agencies. Sometimes we don't publish the artist. Sometimes we publish someone and we don't release their records. Like Purple Disco Machine, he's signed to Sony, but we publish him. He plays our events. So sometimes it's a 180 degree, sometimes it's a 270. Very rarely is it 360. I mean, I really don't want the obligation of looking after someone's life and someone's career. It's a big responsibility. Um, but I can help fill the gaps for them quite well. Um, and I think that's where that comes into play. I think most people that I know that are signed to 360 deals where they don't get to release music on other labels or they don't get to play other people's parts, if they feel a little bit restricted, then they become resentful and that's when your relationship becomes problematic. Got you. And what part does the recently launched Broadcasting House play in the, the overall business? Um, well, I go into the office every Monday and complain about what radio is playing. Every Monday. Period. No matter who the presenter, no matter what radio station is, why are they playing our records? I beat my promo guy out or my promo, my promo team up. And I'm like, we need to get our records played. Anyway, you don't have control of it. Like I said earlier, we like to have control about what we do. So I can't, my, 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 my mantra in life is if you complain about something without doing anything about it, then you've only got yourself to blame. So, so we started the radio station 24-7. We broadcast in-house music. Um, if I'm honest, we're doing it pretty badly at this moment in time. We have no experience in it. We're learning really fast. We'll make our changes. It's visible. People seem to want to broadcast with us, provide set for us, come in and do a live stream. Um, and we will improve. We will get better. So whatever we're doing now, please don't hold me to it in, in years to come. I promise you it will get much better. What have been some of the key learnings so far? Um... A little bit more variety in our playlist because when there's a DJ not doing a radio show or doing a live stream, it, it defaults to a, a Spotify playlist. And I think uh, we, we've repeated a couple of playlists too often. The playlists were 
extensive enough, so some records we get repeated a little bit too raw. Um, a, a diverse program, um, even with our, our streaming facility that's in our basement, um, I'd like the background to be changed a little bit more so it just doesn't look like the same experience. Um, and aligning, aligning um, the radio program with recordings activity in the same way we, or aligning the radio program with events activity. So we have a number of opportunities where we can produce a radio show to help us with other areas of our business. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, just just looking at the reaction, the, the listening habits of people when they listen to things, what, what you know, what they prefer to listen to, and, and you know, and learning from that. Yeah, just always tweaking and optimizing. So I remember vividly, and I use this in job interviews. Um, we were looking at where was Defective going to be. Um, it was, I think it was Amnesia at the time in Ibiza. Obviously, Ibiza is opening up very soon. Fingers crossed. And the decision was made to go to Eden. Um, and at the time, you asked me, "Do you think it's a good idea?" I said, "Absolutely not." It was the biggest strategic mistake I think I've ever made. Um, I guess two questions: How how did you have faith, and what did you see that I didn't? Um, I always try to put myself in the position of the person on the other side of the deck, or the person on the other side of the counter, or. Um, and the first time I ever went to Ibiza was on a budget and I went to San Antonio. And I was with lots of other 20, 22-year-old people at the same time. So you go to Ibiza, you can't really afford it. You know, you scrimp and you save and you make the effort to go because it's like you just need to be there. And that cycle has never changed. So San Antonio is still populated by 20 to 25-year-old kids who can't really afford to go to Ibiza, but they go there on a budget. And everybody in Ibiza kind of looks down its nose at San Antonio because it's where it's a little bit rough and it's, you know, there's kids about. Sometimes they don't conduct themselves too well and, and etc. But it's where the energy is. It's where the realness is. The rest of Ibiza is preoccupied with VIP tables and charging 50 euros to get in and basically you know, 20 euros for vodka, lemon, etc. And um, we felt if we went where the kids were and we could encourage them or, or coerce them to come to Eden, which is actually an amazing club when it's full, any club is, you know, the soul of any club is the people that are on the dance floor. So you can have the best club in the world and if it's the wrong people on the dance floor and there's nobody there, it's soulless. So we we put the right people into Eden and it then becomes an amazing club and an amazing venue. So, which we did, we filled it. The action was amazing. We filmed the fact that we filled it. We shouted about it loud on social media. So the next lot of people that came in on a plane went, Eden's a happening night, I need to go there. So, and now everybody understands what we do. It's because those, we've been there five or six years now. So those 22, 23 year olds are maybe 27. And maybe they're coming to Glitterbox now. Maybe they're coming to Defective and Glitterbox. Maybe they're coming to Croatia. Maybe they come to the London Festival. Maybe they come to a warehouse project where we do it. But the centre point for all of that is they had their first Defective experience in San Antonio. And in 2019, we made the entry 19 euros, which is ridiculously cheap for Ibiza. Um, this year, 2022, the entrance is 22 euros. 
Because we know the other clubs are going to lose everybody financially. Um, but it's not about the event in Ibiza. It's about us growing our community in the right way and giving something back and making them feel that we care about them by not rinsing them. I mean, I went to Amnesia, and I shouldn't badmouth Amnesia, but I went to Amnesia once and I saw a young kid go up to the bar and he asked for four Jaeger bombs. And the girl behind the counter went, 120 euros, please. And I saw the blood drain from this kid's face because he couldn't afford it. Did you buy the Jaeger bombs? I actually had some drinks tokens and I bought them. I gave them, you know. Um, and I just thought, I don't want to be at this place where people are taking advantage of the... I'm, I'm encouraging people to come to this club and then they're coming and they're getting treated badly. That's not good for my brand. So we recapped at, uh, at Eden. And because Eden were very... Uh, appreciative of the fact that we took a leap of faith in them, we were able to you know, negotiate good terms. So it made it a great experience financially and as a clubbing experience uh, for the people that we wanted to get through the door. And so does Ibiza still play the role that it uh, once did in terms of your business and the wider dance music economy? Obviously, you've now got Malta, Croatia. Ibiza's the first, isn't it? Ibiza's where people would argue that, the, the, you know, the, the rage scene. I mean, I know music was made in Chicago and Detroit and whatever, but the music was made there, but it came to life in Ibiza, and then Ibiza exported it all over the world. And that will never be taken away from Ibiza. And that's why it's still held so special to so many people. I don't know, well, I don't, there are probably a couple of places, but... I went to Ibiza in 1986 for the first time. I've been back every single year, as far as I can remember. I don't go back once. I go back multiple times. It's my business. I understand that might be a little bit of the exception. But I know clubbers that go for weekend after weekend after weekend. Clubbing tourism is a massive business to be involved with now. And Ibiza, I still think, is, is the pinnacle of it. I mean, you hear things like, Croatia is a new Ibiza, Tulum is a new Ibiza, Las Vegas is a new Ibiza. There's, you know, Ibiza is a really well-balanced island. There's well-being, there's hedonism, you know, there's great be uh, beaches, etc. There's so many reasons to go into to Ibiza. And you can dip in and out of what you want to when, when you wish to. It's still um, absolutely a priority in our calendar. Definitely. How would you say it differs from your Croatias and your Maltas? I can't answer the, the multi question because well, we've not been there yet. So, um, um, but Cro Croatia's a little bit less regulated. Um, we have outside parties with sound systems at a volume level, which we wouldn't be allowed to do in Ibiza because it would be shut down. Uh, the parties go until six, five and six in the morning, which again is not allowed to be uh, to happen in Ibiza. So it's a slightly um, it's just, it, well, it's a radically different experience. It kind of reminds me of Ibiza when I used to go to Ibiza, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, and Ibiza, you know, it's, I mean, a high is an amazing club, purpose-built club. Eden, they've, you know, they've made their uh, refurbs over the last, uh, you know, the, the pandemic. Um, Pasha have done the same, etc. Um, and, and I still think that that's the thing that people look forward to. They book their, they buy their ticket because they just want to look at something to anticipate. You know, when everything's going 
in the world when you're working hard, when the weather's terrible at home, your football team's losing or whatever, you can think, I'm going to be on the dance floor in two weeks' time at that club and I'm really, really looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Thinking about the future then is a nice little segue. Obviously, your boys have started appearing on lineups, even putting on their own events. How has that been as a father um, and then I guess also as a business owner and a promoter? Um, I have this element of, of guilt being a father to a certain degree because I was absent through so many things. I DJed every weekend. If I wasn't DJing, I was traveling, running a business, I had late nights, dinners, meetings, etc. So, you know, the, 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 um, the pressure on a mom and father to be present at almost everything that their kids um, you know, an achievement, a birthday, etc., whatever. I was missing during a lot of those things. But, you know, I, I'm lucky. I have an incredible wife. I've been married for 28 years, and she really brought my kids up um, to be the people that they are. My role was hunter-gatherer. I had to provide. I worked really hard. You know, I think that if I think about I mean, I try not to... Um, brag about anything that I do or anything but a few years ago I kind of recognised that I might be good at one thing in life and that is recognising a record early and shouting about it as loud as I possibly can you need to know about this DJ, you need to know about this record um, and so I didn't want to fail it and so I worked really hard um, there's, a, there's a Netflix documentary called Defiant Ones where Jimmy Iovine who's a, a who started Interscope and he produced U2 and Blue Springsteen, said that he used to work, feel that he used to work twice as hard as the next guy to be just as good as the next guy. And that's how I felt the entirety of my life, probably until recently. So I, I worked at hard, which meant I was missing for... So I can't say... I, if you watch um, the uh, Will Smith record, what's it called? Uh, King Richard where he's around for his kids and he's drilling in, you're going to be a tennis player, or Tiger, Tiger Woods' his dad, you're going to be a governor. I was not that guy going, you're going to be a DJ, you're going to make music, because I just wasn't there. But they've soaked it all up. Obviously, they've been around music, they've been to people, they've gone to Mambo, they've met all these people, and it's what they've decided they want to do. Um, but what happened was we got gifted... Um, a, pioneer, a set of pioneer decks are defective. And we actually had nowhere to put them. Like every, you were there. Every desk was full. You know, there was no service. We literally had nowhere to put them. So they sat in our, in, in our, in our unit, in our basement. And then Wes, Wes Saunders, my managing director, gave the decks to my kids as a Christmas present. That's a handy Christmas present. It was a great <laughs> Christmas present. So unbeknownst to well, I knew that you'd given them it, but unbeknownst to me, when I was travelling, they spent their time their downtime, practicing mixing, you know, they pick the obvious, I mean, th things that are obvious to me, like the Clapton mix of Gregory Porter, um, um, like really obvious records, but they learn their craft of, of mixing. Now they dig really, really dig for records, and I'll go home and I walk in, and, and, and my youngest, who's 18 years old, will, will go, Do you know that Theo Parrish record? And I'm like, No, I don't know it. And because he's just really searching for records, he's, he's obsessed by it. A bit like my 18, 21-year-old self. Um, and, but they have to pay their dues. They have to be bottom of the lineup. They have to pay, play when nobody's there. It's not about the glory for them. 
It needs to be about the music. They need to learn their craft. They need to be respectful. Um, I mean, even when there's a billing which is alphabetical and their names, you know, the Dunmore brothers, they're quite high up on the bill. And I'm like, no, you need to be bottom. Live with it. Learn to be humble. And uh, just get the respect of your peers and you'll get booked in the right way. Um, it's really quite hard, you know, being that guy where... Well, actually, let me, let me reverse that. It must be really hard being a kid when your father has a reputation and he's very visible um, and people go, yeah, you're a privileged kid. You're only getting that because, because of your dad. So they've got that to contend with for the whole of their lives. Mm. Um, how, how do you kind of mitigate against that? What advice do you offer? You know, mental health has been a big topic um, over the course of the last two days. And being so exposed on social media and getting flat, like you're only getting these gigs because of your dad. How do you offer them any advice for how to deal with that? Yeah, I mean, social media is is, is a challenge, eh? Because the polarisation of, of, of opinion is extreme, and you know, people's opinions are, are extreme. And if they don't like what you said, how, what you do, how you look, and whatever, they're, they're pretty forthcoming in telling you about it, and you and you have to learn to um, to live with it. And and, and um, it was it was really a challenge during lockdown, and I know a lot of people felt uh, under extreme pressure of how to deal um, with things like Black Lives Matter or, you know, or, 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 or gang rights or, you know, just, you know, parity in lineups and all of the things that people have an, uh, an opinion on these days. All you can do is do your best and reconcile with yourself that you know what you're doing, you know what your intentions are, you know what you meant to say. You know if your intentions were good or you were, you know, you, you were being a little bit out of order. Um, and if you can live with yourself and then someone that you don't even know doesn't understand you, feels like have an opinion on what you're doing, um, you just have to, to, to make sure that the people that are close to you understand you and they're there for you and can go, do you know what? The guy really doesn't understand what you're talking or he's misread it, or maybe he got out of bed, or maybe he's jealous, or all of the other factors that come into play. Um, and, uh, you know, I, funny enough, I, we, we put a record out um, by Idris Elba. Now, Idris loves his music, and he loves to DJ. He doesn't need to DJ. He doesn't need to work his set out, go and play records in front of loads of people. Well, he's a pretty rich guy. He's in a lot of movies. Like, why does he need to bother to do that shit? Do you know why he does it? Because he really loves doing it. And I said, how do you deal with the fact that people have a go at you? So you're not a real DJ or, you know, you're taking away someone's slot. And he said, I know my truth. I get up at six o'clock every morning. I go to the gym. I do my interviews. I learn my lines. I get on an aeroplane. I do, you know, I, 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 you know, I act. I do my films and whatever. And I know that I'm a good person. And if someone doesn't like me for what I am, I can't control that. So I just push it to the back and just focus on the people that do appreciate me. And I think that's the only way you can deal with these situations. So, you know, when the time comes, uh, or actually I probably have had a conversation, I mean, I say it to my staff, I say it to my DJs, you know, DJ does a bad set or, you know, or whatever, and everyone comes down on them and they phone you up and go, you know, ask, you know, what's going on here? We just have to reason it out. And, and the logic of it just means that normally you can get to understand it and hopefully then once you understand it, 
you could deal with it. Yeah, I think the understanding thing is key. You touched on an interesting point of maybe that person had a bad day. Maybe something's happened in their life and that's why they're lashing out. And I think trying to have that empathy does go some of the way to, um, to I guess, uh, being able to deal with it better. Well, um, obviously, we've offered them a little bit of advice there and, you know, you're not speaking to your artists. What advice, if any, have you given the boys when it's come to putting on their own events because they're doing some better? Um, so obviously getting their hands dirty with promotion. Um, well, Sobdell is, is, is a huge learning curve for my eldest, Louis. Um, he was in Newcastle, uh, finishing his uni, and he, 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 you know, he was playing lots of Afro house records. It was his passion, that's his particular thing. And um, he said, oh, I want to put a night there. I want to promote a night. And I think there's, there's you know, there's no Afro house nights in Newcastle. And I went, well, there may be a good reason for that, Louis. Maybe there's not a demand. He goes, no, no, I'm sure there's a demand. And I was, so, um, so I supported him, and I wanted him to learn the hard way. I mean, he, he, he hired a small club. Um, so the reason I was quite encouraged, encouraging him to do this because he would learn about the economics of running a night. He would learn about the marketing of a night, not necessarily a home run. I mean, there's not a huge black community um, in, in Newcastle, so an Afro house night is definitely a challenge. Um, and uh, so he put on this night, he got his artwork together. You know, it, it was small, 120, 150 people. I mean, he's got a few friends, so I kind of feel it affirming. Um, and then he, he just he got enough people for it to be a vibe. And I said, okay, so for people to really understand what you're trying to do, um, maybe you should start a record label. Um, so we, we're helping him start a record label. So he now knows that he's going to do events to help promote and market the music that he's releasing on Sondela, and the music he's releasing on Sondela is going to help him market, market his events. It's a template. It's visible to everyone. It's what we do. I just want him to experience it. He's managing his costs. Um, he has no reputation. He works with Seth Combo, uh, who is a guy that has really paid his dues in London. Um, who I've known for maybe 12 years, who has run Afro House Nights, who knows the right people, who knows the community in South Africa, and um, Louis learning from Seth as part of his education. Um, and we'll see whether it becomes a career for him. So as a father, what would you do for your son? You want to help them. You know, again, people have comments on that and they have opinions on that. But he's my kid and I'm going to support him. Yeah, of course. Has uh, has his experiences uh, have they taught you anything, or made you think differently about defective records in the wider ecosystem? My my kids um, are my legacy. Like you know, any father, your kids are your legacy. Um, and um, the pandemic and the fact that my kids are now DJing now has made me realise that. I've, uh, you know, maybe DJing is not my future. Maybe, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 59, I'm 60 this year. You know, it takes me a lot longer to recover from staying up all night and then getting on an aeroplane. Uh, I have a business to run. I have a family that I need to take care of. So I've decided to, uh, to stop touring. Now, everyone asks me, you're retiring. I'm not retiring. I'm just not touring. So if the opportunity, if I have to be somewhere like, 
Croatia or it be for London. And there's an opportunity to play records, of course, I play records. It's like what I love to do. It's what I've done since I was 18 years old. But I just can't get on a plane every night. And, and you know, that's that's for the kids. Yeah. So Nice. Okay. Just in the last kind of minutes, just to wrap things up, you know, you mentioned there have been some tough times. It hasn't all been unicorns and rainbows expected. What uh, what are some of the toughest moments over the past few decades and what have been some of those learnings from them? Um, the, t- the, the tough moments were the transitions. Um, we've never had any backers. We've never had any. But when we started, um, actually, it was a joint venture with the Ministry of Sound. They had their, um, their opinion on the way that they thought the dance music was supposed to be. Me being my stubborn self, didn't agree with it. Um, we parted company, and, and from that moment on, we were we were on our own, and we've never had any backers or funders. But then, I mean, it will be pr- pretty uh, amazing for a lot of people to, to believe what's here. We've never had an overdraft facility uh, bank. We've been to our bank so many times and said, can we have an overdraft facility? And they went, you're in the music industry, there's not a chance we're going to lend you any money. And, uh, and I, but, but that made that made us think about what we do and, 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 and made us um, come to good practices in, in terms of managing our, our, our finances and our cash flow and not to be reckless. And if, if we had too much money, I think I probably would have been reckless. It was probably not a bad thing. I'd have paid way too much for the DJs or, or for records or whatever. So we have to justify um, what we do. But, you know, the cash flow bumps that we've had at certain times. I mean, when we first started, we came out of the blocks and we, I mean, we smashed it. Right? We had five top 20 records in the UK pop charts in our first year. But what you don't realise is to have five hits, you have to manufacture hundreds of thousands of pieces of product, which the terms for the manufacturing was 30 days. But I wasn't getting paid until six months down the line. So there was this huge gap in our cash flow. I'd never run a business before. I was completely at bills. And all of a sudden, I looked at our bankers and I was just like, shit, how do we deal with that? You know, and then and then we, you know, we we, we got creative, we did some deals, we, we got some influxes of, of money to enable us to, to write that bump out. But at various times the transition that we had to endure during EDM when house music wasn't so popular, we battened down the hatches, we call in the favours that we need to call in. Um, but but you learn from them. So when the pandemic hit, we were like, we're ready for this. We've been through all of these transitions, all of these bumps, all of these challenges. How do we navigate our way through this? And I was just like, we need to be visible. Everyone's stuck at home. There's no football on the telly. They stopped making EastEnders. There was no soap on offers. All the film studios are closed down. And like everyone's sitting there. And I'm like, let's go do a live stream. We organized a live stream within five days of going into lockdown. And we had a captive audience. So we've learned to be creative at the times you most need. When the chips are down, I believe that's what really defines you as a business. A business not, is not defined by the good times, when you're doing great and whatever, because you're doing well. A business is defined by how you deal with the challenges. And I feel we deal with the challenges really well.
don't think I can top that as an ending. Simon, thank you so much for your time. It's been super insightful. Can I get a round of applause for Simon?